I thought it was interesting to stop for just a second today before we start a new book in the Bible and really have us uh, for just a moment. This is hard for most of us because I'm guessing most of the audience here are Christians and have had some exposure to church, the Bible, whatever. I sometimes wish there were a lot more of the other kind here. Uh, because it's good for us to remember those of us in the Christian exposure category. What we're doing today is very, very weird. <laughs> Think about it for just a moment. We're about to not just spend a few minutes, but months in a short little letter written by this rabbi turned radical Christian Almost 2,000 years old, this letter written to a church smaller than this one. What in the world? What, what is it about this little? I mean, it's kind of a weird thing if you step away from it for just a, a minute and think. I mean, there's a gazillion other ancient documents. We're just a collection of people who love ancient documents. We know that's not the reason, right? We know this just isn't a letter written by a guy named Paul to a group of followers of Jesus. We firmly believe that all 66 books that make up this book called the Bible, though they were written by individuals over the span of several thousand years, 40 different authors, three different continents, multiple ethnicities, behind their pens was the Holy Spirit, and God was speaking to humanity, and only here does he speak to humanity. And this is light for us today, and I hope you'll uh, experience that as we walk our way through this book. I thought I would just start today I'm, uh, and just explain why Philippians. Of all the 66 books, why this? Uh, it started out very personal, personal for me about four months ago when I began sort of swimming and breathing and living in Philippians. Uh, Philippians, for those of you who've been in it at all or maybe heard sermons on it, is a book about joy. And... Uh, I thought, you know, I don't know that joy would be one of the great characteristics in the first 12 or 13 things people describe of me. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm a great critic. I really like that about me. Uh, but joy? No, not really. And, and then, I, you know, it makes you ask other questions like, um, what brings you joy? Right? What, what, what brings you joy? Which then, of course, makes us ask another question. Wait a second, what is joy? Okay, so that's where it started for me. But there's something that happens when you hover in a book for any length of time. I went into this book as kind of a personal antidote to some depressive tendencies in my life. I came out of this book realizing this is a brilliant letter that goes way beyond individual Christianity. This is a timely letter for us. This is light in a time when it seems like darkness is winning. Or better yet, I, I think to some extent, I don't, don't take this the wrong way. This is Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And this is a slap in the face that we desperately need. 
a good slap in the face from a faithful friend who loves us dearly. It's a book about joy, and sometimes you have to get slapped in the face before you're joyful. Uh, and I hope we discover that uh, today as we take off. So what I want to do, something very different today, a brief tour of the letter to the Philippians. We're going to get into the historical background of Philippians and all that other stuff next week. Uh, but we're just going to take a tour. This is going to be a very different kind of message a little bit. But um, there are uh, many suggestions for you in the bulletin there of how you can spend time in Philippians. And I would encourage you to just bathe in Philippians for months to come. Uh, so consider those. If not, there's others. But one of the ways when you're reading a book, particularly a letter in the New Testament, one of the ways if you've never read the Bible before, you could just simply get it out and start looking for common words that are repeated, words that seem to have importance. And, and as a result, there's at least four key words in the book of Philippians. I bet you can guess one of them. Joy, right? So, uh, Joy, uh, Paul, the, 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 the uh, author of this letter, wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. This one was one of his shorter ones. Uh, but out of those 13 letters, he only mentions joy about half the time as he does here. Joy shows up three and a half times in every chapter. Uh, that's the average there in the book of Philippians. And in all the rest of his other books combined, it only shows up in every other chapter. So clearly this is a chapter on joy, That's or the book on joy, it's not hard to find. But interestingly, there's another word that shows up even more than joy. It's the word think. Of the 13 books in um, all of the New Testament that Paul wrote, some are much longer, like Romans 16 chapters, 1 Corinthians 16 chapters. In all those books together, the word think shows up 23 times. Ten of them are in Philippians. Ten of them in Philippians. But you know what shows up in Philippians the most? A phrase that would be easy to just go by. It's like mile markers on the road. You know, you just don't even notice them after a while. Here it is. Forty times this shows up. In Christ. Now, I know some of you who are really good Bible people say, well, that shows up in all the letters. Yeah. What's going on there? Well, let's just put those three things together. If nothing else, we could say joy comes from this in Christ mindset. Those are the three words, joy, think, and in Christ. Joy is from an in Christ mindset. And sure enough, we see that in Paul. Paul tells us a lot about himself in this letter. In chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. There's that in Christ mindset. Chapter 3, I want to know God. I want to know his power, and then he surprises us. I want to know Jesus' sufferings, too. And then in chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul is just modeling that in Christ mindset that gives him joy despite some very hard circumstances that he's in that we'll learn more about next week. So then that leads to defining joy. This is my operating idea on joy, uh, and, and Philippians has just reinforced this all the more. I think joy, to, to kind of just put it in two phrases, is a defiant nevertheless. No matter what's happening in the world, your soul just says, nevertheless, and then you dot, 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 you fill in all the great truths that you know of Christ. 
Interestingly, the book of Philippians is primarily a book about perseverance to the Philippians themselves. And so this is a, it's, it's almost as though joy is a synonym with perseverance. I think what Philippians has done for me, which I pray it does for all of you, it has increased my capacity to suffer for Jesus. And what a time when we need to suffer. That's what joy does. It's a defiant nevertheless that increases our capacity to suffer. It's also a contended anticipation. It is stabilizing certainty for anxious hearts. It is stabilizing certainty. It's not just contentment, it's contented anticipation. It's stabilizing certainty for anxious heart that leads to a peace that surpasses understanding. Now, one of the most interesting things you're going to discover about joy in this book is it thrives corporately and barely survives individually. Joy thrives corporately. It's a shared and contagious affection. It thrives corporately and it barely survives individually. Do you know that in every single chapter, there's an emphasis on the unity of the body? The unity of the body. But you know what? It's not just unity for the sake of unity. It's unity around something. It is unity around the gospel. A community with a common passion. Think Spartan fans. Uh, it, is, it is a community with a common passion that centers around the gospel. By the way, did you remember earlier when I said there were four key words? There were four key words? The fourth one is gospel. And then there's the centerpiece of the letter. Lauren read it for us today, chapter 2. The humility of Christ. Clearly in my mind, from a literary perspective, it is the centerpiece of this gospel. It is sort of a bonding agent, if you will, with, for believers. It, it, it's a, it, it binds believers together. It intensifies their Christian growth, and it amplifies their witness to a world so that they're like shining stars amidst the darkness. That's the language from Philippians 2. So a metaphor that I think will help keep this all together, the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N. Um, think, think about the sun. Okay, those of you, if there's any sun experts in the room, cut me a lot of slack here. I'm given kind of a, I, you know, I'm given a kind of a more, I'd say, elementary school workable kind of definition here. But the sun is made up primarily of hydrogen and helium. You know what holds it together? This intense gravity. The sun has an intense amount of gravity. I mean, planets way, way out there are, are kept in a predictable orbit because of the gravity of the sun. It's over 90% of the mass of our entire solar system. Intense gravity in the middle of that sun, which I would liken to humility. It is the humility of Christ that is this intense gravitational pull. And what happens when this hydrogen and helium are pulled together by this gravity? There's a nuclear reaction that happens in the middle of the sun. And that's where 
Humility unites us around the gospel. It pulls us together, this, this, this beautiful humility that we're going to look at. It unites us around the gospel, and then you can almost guess what's going to happen from there. Joy radiates out like, like heat to a cold and dark world. That is the book of Philippians. Do you see how it is so much more than just something to make Rick a little more happy? Now, I want to digress, and I want to get into some heavy stuff for just a moment. We're going to push through this quickly, I think, but I, I, I reason why I, I think it'll help set us up for appreciating the breadth of Philippians. I'll tell you about a raft trip, first of all, to kind of set the stage. Uh, I was in college. I think I was near graduation. My best friend, who was also my best man, Tom, uh, he and I decided to go raft the Colorado River all by ourselves for three days, uh, four days and three nights. You know, wild adventure, great thing, and um, it, was all, it was all great, but Tom was the scientist, I was the sort of freelancer, uh, and so uh, Tom decided, you know, he had this little booklet we took with us, and by the way, this was a time when there were no cell phones. We didn't see a single person for 48 hours. Um, and uh, we were on this river, and this little booklet that he had was uh, the rapids of the river. And depending on the number, the higher the number, the more intense the rapid. And so the smart thing to do before uh, big number rapids was you, you docked your raft, you got it on the side, you saw the rapids, and then you navigated your course through the, ra through the rapids. And of course, our most memorable moment was when we did that, we navigated our way through and we realized right as we were halfway through the rapids, we were seeing a precursor of the real rapids, which was around the corner. And so everything got drenched, but so be it. Um, so I would say this, think about the importance of getting out of your raft and doing some navigating to what's happening in our world instead of just reacting. These are high number rapids that we're living in right now. The past two decades, our world has experienced dramatic change. And I have been very, I've been helped along with many other Christians by a, a significant number of people who've written on what's happening in our culture. Uh, and you'll hear reference to these uh, throughout uh, Philippians. People who just have a brilliant mind, who've been able to just sort of step back and look at where uh, things have trended. And if we're going to navigate this river, we not only need to look ahead at what's coming, but we also need to look back up the river to where we have been. We need, we need to understand how profound belief in God has changed, not just in the last 20 years, but in the last 70 years. And even before that, we need to realize that we are a product of philosophies that were introduced 150 years ago that we may not even know the names of the people. It's easy when you're around the Bible. It's easy to, to spot very quickly behaviors that are way off the page of what God says. We're good at that. What's interesting about that is we may not realize that behind all of these abhorrent behaviors that are way off the page of God's word are philosophies that have probably made their way into our life already. They've influenced our lifestyles, how we interpret the Bible, even how we understand discipleship. 
So I want to just give you two kind of examples of how this has played out. It's going to seem a little dark for a moment, but hang in there. We're going to, we're going to surface at the, at the end of this. Uh, this is getting all to this question of why Philippians. We live in a day of excessive anxiety. I don't think that should be news to anyone. Um, and the best way to define it is this. The certainty of God, the certainty of God in our general culture has been replaced by the uncertainty of human experience. The certainty of God has been replaced by the uncertainty of human experience. Did you know that in 1950, Gallup took one of their polls of kind of people's religious beliefs or religious affiliations. 1950, not that long ago, really. 66% were Protestant, 24% were Catholic, 6% were Jewish. That's not the shocker. The shocker is there were no other legitimate categories. There were no other legitimate categories. It doesn't mean there wasn't an atheist or a Muslim floating around out there. But that was, I mean, this was America just in 1950. Charles Taylor has written, I think, uh, one of the most helpful, influential books quoted by uh, lots of biblical scholars and other people. He's a Canadian theologian, but uh, he talks about our, we live in a secularized era that started about 200 years ago. Uh, and it's unlike any other civilization in human history. Just get that. It's unlike any other civilization in human history where belief in God is now optional. It's so normal we don't even think about it. I love this quote by Taylor. Christianity is now one tiny dot of light, an option among a supernova explosion of other options. Increasingly, it's also becoming the least appealing option, being oppressive and exclusive. A phenomenon that causes us to be fragilized. We've transitioned from a society that reinforced our certainty to one that makes certainty elusive. And here it is, we're overcome with uncertainty. It's a day of excessive anxiety. We're overcome with uncertainty. And here's the crazy thing, like Kathy likes to say lots of times uh, in counseling, we've normalized the abnormal. We're just used to it. We're just used to it. The stabilizing authority uh, of a community held theology, which was true for a long time. There was a basic theology that most people believed held by the community at large. Yes, there were some significant differences, but there was a large cluster of the world population, even the international population, uh, that gathered around a commonly held theology, and that was a stabilizing authority, and that has been replaced by the destabilizing authority of something else, which you're going to hear a lot of expressive, individualism. Expressive individualism. What is that? All right, well, think about it this way. All of us, whether we think about it or not, all of us have an identity. All of us kind of intuitively know how to answer the question, uh, who am I and why am I? You know, who am I and why am I? Now, what's interesting, here's the radical shift of this over the course of the last couple of centuries. Forever and ever, the way you discovered who you are and why you are was outside of you. It was in the theological community. It was in your tribe. It was in, 
It was in the, the workings of the world. People discovered who they were, why humans were around, what our purpose was outside of us. It was God-given, and then God enabled us to discover it. That has shifted massively today, where your identity is not God-given and you must grow up and discover the meaning of life. Now you give yourself meaning. You give yourself identity. You have become your own creator. That's expressive individualism. And as a result, one of the significant things that happens is how people think of dignity. Dignity no longer comes from realizing your purpose and getting in line with it. Dignity comes from advertising who you are and expecting, demanding that other people endorse you. Experiential individualism means that feelings have more weight than factual arguments. And we better pay attention to them. So, excessive anxiety. The other thing is a day of excessive fragmentation. We're getting to Philippians. Hang in there. In order for a society to hold together, it basically needs three foundational things. Three foundational authorities that glue a society together. The family, the church, and the government. Or you could say religion even. But that's what holds a society together. And that has fragmented significantly. If, if life is about learning how to be a tightrope walker, you know, balancing on the tightrope, the family, the church, and the government are the safety net underneath so that you can be freed from anxiety and just walk, you know, practice till you get better. That safety net is so torn, the fabric's so torn, I would never want to get on the wire. They'll never catch me. The family, and by the way, family, I'm defining it as what I think biblically the family is, which is not a mom and dad and some kids. The family is a geographically close extended family. A geographically close extended family, and that's basically experienced a total loss since the 1950s. Relational intimacy, which the Bible says is most exemplified in a Christian marriage, is today just as much a risky gamble whether you are a believer or not a believer because the stats aren't any different. No wonder no one really wants to trust the family. What family? No wonder we want to redefine the family. The church, I've gotten to the point now where, where, there, where there's a great leader who's having a huge influence. You know what I think in the back of my mind and sometimes in the front of my mind? I wonder how long before they're going to fall. And I've said this for a long time without apology. For many believers, what holds them to a local church community is not a commitment to Christ, but a consumerism mentality. And if, if the restaurant isn't doing it for you, there's lots of others that will. And by the way, pastors are the worst at this because we buy into it by constantly trying to market you to stay. The government? Oh, okay. Now there's something we can trust. Here's the thing. All of these institutions have had corruption in them. 
I'm not, I'm not pretending like we've suddenly gotten, it's just the, it's the amplification of all three of them, how much the corruption has amplified and how quickly it's amplified in our time that has made this so disastrous. And here's the thing about the government. Because the church and the family have failed so miserably, guess what the government has to do? Step in and play the role. And when they do, they make what is broken even more broke. And the fragmentation of these foundational authorities has led to three things, just very briefly. We've become relationally disabled. Healthy human relationships are rare. I've lost count of the number of men, and I've asked several of you this, the number of men who I ask, do you have one good male friend that really has your back spiritually? I mean, they ask the hard stuff. They, they're just with you up and down. I would say easily 90% of the men I've asked over the course of 40 years have said no. Oh, they know other guys. They hang out with other guys. I'm not talking about that. What we lack is humility, and we lack the experience of community. And as a result, we don't resolve natural human conflicts. We sweep them under the rug, and that makes relational intimacy almost impossible. We've normalized addiction. We have acceptable forms of self-destructive escape. I'm not just talking about substance abuse like drug, alcohol, and food. Don't forget food. I'm also talking about another S word, screens. We've become addicted to them, and I think that's one of the reasons why anger and anxiety are at epidemic proportions. The Surgeon General called it you know, a national disaster. The, the problems with anger and anxiety. And our lifestyles have been complexified. This hyper-consumption world that we live in has turned so many wants into needs. And they've led to so much distraction that I don't see how we can even hear God anymore. Because there's just too much going on in life. And he moves at too slow a speed. Okay, should we close there? All right. Good answer. This is why Philippians is so great. In a day of excessive fragmentation, the gravitational effect of humility will bind us together again. And in that binding together, it will create a nuclear reaction of such energy that we will radiate out joy, which in my mind is another word for certainty, to an anxious world. It's a simple formula in some ways. And that's why Philippians is so beautiful. We have a world that's thirsty for certainty in a day of excessive anxiety. So... As we come to the table this morning, believe it or not, now let's turn to Philippians. But before we do that, I'm going to ask the worship team and the guys serving communion. There are some chairs over here, guys, who are serving communion, to come forward. If you're visiting with us or even if you're not, you know that we normally come down the center aisle to take the bread and the cup. And then you hold the bread and cup and I'll lead us in taking it um, together in just a moment. And I thought it would be great to get prepared to come to this table by turning in your bulletin and looking at the first two verses of Philippians. 
just a couple comments that I think will be helpful. Sometimes one of the best ways that I enjoy the Word of God is I imagine words that aren't necessary and I realize how profound those words are. So imagine if this started, Paul and Timothy comment to all the saints. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. And this is just isn't the word generic servant. This is the word bond slaves. These are people who are willing to be slaves of Jesus Christ no matter what. Bond slaves. There's humility. There's humility not only in the first sentence, but practically the first three words. And no wonder, someone said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So it would make sense that his followers are also slaves of others. And then to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Oh, I need to say this more. Saints of Red Cedar, welcome. Seriously, that's who you are. We should bask in the beauty of what has happened to us because of what has happened to Jesus. I love uh, Melissa Kruger's comment here. Uh, that's one of the common uh, devotional studies I've listed for you as a Philippians resource. This is brilliant. Listen to this. There is a big difference between, be, between being a saint who struggles with sin and a sinner who's trying to be a saint. I'm going to say it again. There is a big difference, a huge difference, between being a saint who's right with Christ no matter what you've done because of what Jesus has done. You're forever permanently right with Christ. Get over it. But we struggle with sin. All right, let's fight it. It's not who you are, but it's what you're fighting. A saint who struggles with sin versus so many religions, a sinner who's trying to be a saint. And if they're honest, failing miserably. <laughs> That's why this table is here. To the overseers and deacons, a church without an, inf a church without a, an authoritative infrastructure is a church where Jesus is not. A church without an authoritative infrastructure is a church where Jesus is not. But get this, it's not a church of people with power Overseers and deacons are servants with a weight of responsibility. They are not leaders with power. They are servants with a weight of responsibility. Grace and peace as you come to this table. Grace, the vertical. Peace, the horizontal. Grace, some of you know from the book of Romans, we spell it with an extra R and it stands for something. God's reigning righteousness in our lives at Christ's expense. And what is peace then? Peace is simply stabilizing wholeness from being an object of God's grace. So, saints, come and feed on grace and peace. They're yours because of Christ. And as you return, return as willing slaves, overflowing with joy. Let's take a moment, and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Well, Father, these are not words for us. Slave, saint, grace, peace. These are words that are rich with meaning because of the work you've done in our life. Thank you again for the prayer cover we've had for decades in this church. And even now as we come to take a bread and cup, overwhelm us with all that we have in Christ. Our world is so dark. It needs light. And it needs not just me. It needs us. So hear our cry now, as you always do. In Jesus' good name, amen.